Hello, and welcome to this reading of the Ames Tribune for May 6, this Wednesday, 2020. Your reader today is Dave Sauerman, and here is our first article. And of course, you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. The title of our first article is One Additional Case of COVID-19 Reported in Story County on the Day Iowa Surpasses 10,000 Cases. This story is written by David Mullen, staff writer for the Tribune. The Iowa Department of Public Health announced an additional positive case of COVID-19 in Story County on Tuesday, bringing the total number of positive cases to 39. The individual is an adult whose age ranges between 18 and 40, according to the State Health Department. Steve Sullivan, spokesperson for Mary Greedley, confirmed the additional case, but did not immediately know where they were tested or their current status. Throughout Story County, 903 residents have been tested for COVID-19, and of the nearly 40 confirmed cases, 26 patients have fully recovered, according to the State Health Department. On Tuesday, Governor Reynolds reported that 408 Iowans have tested positive for the virus, and 19 additional deaths occurred as a result of COVID-19. Throughout the state, Iowa has had 10,111 cases reported by the State Health Department, which has led to 207 deaths. As of Tuesday, 60,569 Iowans have been tested for the virus, and of the more than 10,000 residents who have tested positive for the virus, 3,572 have fully recovered, according to the State Department of Health. And a reader's note, Kim Reynolds is in Washington, D.C. today to meet with President Trump. Our next story from the front page, North Grand Mall reopens and looks forward to continued growth. This story by Kylie Mullen, staff writer for the Ames Tribune. North Grand Mall is not letting a pandemic stop it from moving forward. General Manager Lori Bosley said stores are beginning to gradually reopen. Construction is progressing and we are taking what we have and doing the best with it as we can. The mall reopened its doors Friday following Governor Kim Reynolds' announcement that restaurants, retail shops, fitness centers, malls, and libraries could reopen with some limitations in 77 counties where coronavirus activity has been minimal or declining, according to including, excuse me, including Story County. In addition to social distancing requirements, shops and restaurants can operate at 50% of normal capacity. So what is open? As the mall opened its doors, so did Carolyn's Hallmark, iTalk, Ragstock, Riddle's Jewelry, Shag, Strawberry Patch, Trade Home Shoes, and Verizon. Shoe Carnival, located outside the mall, also reopened, and Kohl's is open but offering curbside pickup only. Restaurants opened Carlos's Quesadillas and Flame and Skewer are providing takeout. The Buckle and Milroy's opened Monday and more businesses plan to open in the coming days and weeks. Planet Fitness is expected to reopen next week, but an exact date has not been set, Bosley said. Everyone is just getting ready, getting all their stuff together, 
and redoing their stores to make sure there is room for six feet, she said, referring to the recommended spacing between people for social distancing. Each company is doing their own thing. They have their own guidelines, and everybody is going to have a level of protection. According to Bosley, none of the businesses take reopening lightly, and all are taking steps to meet and exceed social distancing and cleanliness requirements. So what are businesses going to do to keep people safe? Bosley said there have been some in the community who have expressed concerns about reopening, but for the most part, we've seen a lot of support. Sure, there is a comment here or there, but you know what, when we're going to reopen. At some point, you cannot continue to wait, she said. The governor said it was okay to reopen, and we happen to be a private property that leases to businesses, and we cannot restrict them from opening if that is what they want to do. We're going to support our merchants, their employees, our mall employees, and our customers. We have to think about all of them. The mall also is doing what it can to ease the concerns community members raise, Bosley said. A crew works throughout the building daily to clean high-touch areas. There is hand sanitizer available at each entrance, and community members are asked to wear a mask while they are shopping. Kids' areas and sitting areas are not available, and mall walking is suspended. I think we have the responsibility to our stores to allow them to come back and start doing business again, and to support everyone the best that we can, Bosley said. We want to do what is best for everybody and make it the most seamless reopening as possible. She said that for now, shopping is all the mall can offer, though she looks forward to making the mall a hub for gathering again when the threat of COVID-19 has passed. That is not the current reality, she said. We are a place to shop at this point, not to gather. It sounds sad, but in phase one, that is what it's supposed to be, she said. Phase 2 and Phase 3 will have more of the other stuff. In other words, gathering. Not all businesses in the mall are allowed to reopen under Reynolds' authorization, including Inside Golf and North Grand Cinema. However, that does not mean customers are unable to support those businesses during what has been a particularly difficult time. At Inside Golf, customers are encouraged to purchase gift cards online, to use once the business is able to open. North Grand Cinema also offers gift cards and has recently begun offering popcorn days, events to help keep the business running and support its employees. Popcorn days kicked off the weekend of April 17 when families could buy a big bag of popcorn, among other treats, to enjoy during their at-home movie nights. The event will continue to take place during occasional weekends whenever staff is available, according to cinema owner Diane Aiken. An event may take place this weekend and will be announced on the cinema's website and on their Facebook page. We're emphasizing to employees that they can work if they want to, but they are not required to. So we are waiting for a few more people who would like to get some hours and to work, Aiken said. On the two weekends the event has taken place so far, Aiken said, it was very popular. The first Friday was crazy. We were overrun. We did not pop enough ahead, and the rest of the day, the popper was the bottleneck. There was a lot of standing around and waiting for the popper. There were customers who waited in line for three hours, she said. 
But the next day, we went in three hours earlier than we had on Friday, and we built up a stockpile of bags, and it went a lot more smoothly. We did the same last weekend. Our employees and our customers, safety is of primary importance, Aiken added. We were pleased to be able to offer some work hours to employees, and pleased to be able to provide movie, theater, popcorn for our customers. It was a very good event. It brought in some much-needed revenue as well. Not like being open, but every little bit helps. How is the mall going to keep growing during the pandemic? According to Bosley, there was a lot of momentum at the mall before COVID-19 shut everything down. Planet Fitness had just opened, and the mall was looking ahead to the grand opening of Bebop's and was getting ready to sign leases for businesses who will operate out of the mall's new development near J.C. Penney. Though the closing put a damper on that momentum, Bosley said the mall is continuing to grow. It's still an exciting time to be part of the mall, but we were right there when the businesses shut down. We had so much momentum, now we have to figure out how to reopen and get that momentum back, Bosley said. Happy Nails is expanding. Bebops is opening soon, the new building is progressing, and we are close to signing two leases. Things are progressing, and everybody is still social distancing and staying safe. Our next story on the front page, Woodward Resource Center in Boone has 10 cases of COVID-19. This story is written by the Tribune staff. Six residents of a Boone County facility that treats people with disabilities have tested positive for the COVID-19 novel coronavirus, state officials said. Woodward Resource Center, which is operated by the Iowa Department of Human Services, also has four staff members who have tested positive for the virus, bringing the total number of cases connected to the facility to 10. As of Sunday, nine employees from five different DHS facilities have tested positive for COVID-19 including four staff members at Woodward, one at Cherokee Mental Health Institute, one at Independence Mental Health Institute, and two at Eldora Boys State Training School, according to the state release. Woodward Resource Center is the only Department of Human Services facility with positive cases confirmed among its residents or patients, the release said. The first patient to be tested, according to the release, was confirmed positive on May 1st, and as a precaution, all residents of the home on Woodward's campus were tested, even though they were asymptomatic. Five tested positive. Prior to the announcement of the first positive test, the center's assistant superintendent, Diane Stout, sent a letter April 30 to guardians and families in late April regarding the potential COVID-19 patient, according to the Des Moines Register. The letter, according to the Register's report, indicated Woodward staff began contact tracing to determine who of the residents had been in contact within the 14 days prior to when the first positive case was confirmed. Four staff members then tested positive. The status of the 10 patients at Woodward Resource Center was not clear, but employees who have tested positive are not allowed to return to work until they are asymptomatic for seven days and a temperature has been normal for three consecutive days, according to the release. To protect other residents of the home Woodward Resource Center, or WRC, 
Residents who test positive are transitioned to another house on the campus, designated for positive cases, the release said. As their symptoms improve and they meet specific criteria, they will transition to a step-down house before returning to their primary residence. As of Sunday, 24 staff members and residents have tested negative for COVID-19. Results of four tests are currently pending. Of Boone County's 28 positive cases, more than one-third are from the Woodward facility. And the final story on the front page, or from the front page, Nevada High School graduation prom to be held in the summer. That's just the prom, not the graduation. I, I take that back. I apologize. The title is Nevada High Graduation Prom to be Held in the Summer by Kylie Wellendorf. The story is a staff writer for the Tribune. For the first time in the school's history, Nevada high school seniors will attend both prom and graduation in the same weekend in mid-July. The unusual confluence comes as a result of cancellations due to COVID-19, which cut the school year short and took away the spring sports season. While school districts in Story County have worked to develop plans to hold an in-person commencement, many districts have been forced to cancel prom due to the inability to reschedule prior to the end of the school year. However, Nevada Community School District Superintendent Steve Gray told the board members early on that district would, the district would push to reschedule the traditional event at a different time. During the board's virtual meeting in April, he said canceling would be a very last, least desirable option. While high school graduation is a once-in-a-lifetime event for students, prom is also an event that most students only get to experience a couple of times, Gray said. Our students have had many experiences taken away this spring due to the pandemic, and those are experiences that provide special memories of high school. If we can preserve a small part of that, then we feel a responsibility to make every effort to do so. The school district decided to schedule both prom and graduation on the same weekend in an effort to preserve both events and create clarity in our communication, Gray said. Separate dates could potentially cause confusion if cancellations were to occur. It allows for a very full and special weekend of celebration, Gray said. The response from students and their families has been positive, said Gray and Tori Karsrund, Nevada School Board President. I've heard lots of positive comments and kudos to our district in rescheduling or postponing the graduation and prom to July, Karsrud said during Monday's virtual board meeting. The senior events will kick off the weekend with prom on Friday, July 10, at gatherings followed by graduation on Sunday, July 12, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon at the Nevada High School Fieldhouse. If social distancing guidelines continue past the July dates, the weekend will be rescheduled, with prom taking place Friday, August 7, and graduation Sunday, August 9. Prom will be canceled if social distancing guidelines continue past the August date, and graduation will then be held virtually, according to the district. The prom schedule is 6.45 p.m. Doors open for Grand March. 7.30 to 8.15 p.m. Grand March at Tope. 8.30 to 11.30 p.m. Prom at Gatherings. 
11.30 p.m. to 4 a.m. after prom at Nevada High School. The banquet dinner will not be provided this year, according to the district. Procedures for underclassmen and out-of-town guests will be communicated <clears throat> Excuse me, as the date of prom approaches, the district said in a message to the parents. In addition, there will be no charge for underclassmen and out-of-town guests. The last day of learning for seniors will fall on June 3, with final grades due June 5. Transcripts will be sent electronically on June 8, which will be recorded as the official date of graduation, the district said. Students will receive diplomas at the communicated makeup graduation ceremony date. In the event of a virtual graduation ceremony, diploma distribution procedures will be communicated at a later date, the district said. Turning inside the Tribune now to page two, coronavirus infects more than 1,600 workers at four Iowa meatpacking plants. This story is written by Tony Lays of the Des Moines Register. More than 1,600 workers at four Iowa meatpacking plants have been infected with the coronavirus, according to state health officials on Tuesday. The worst hit factory is the Tyson Pork Processing, excuse me, the Tyson Pork Processing Plant in Perry, where 730 workers tested positive for the virus, the Iowa Department of Public Health reported. That means 58% of the workers who were tested at the plant had the virus, according to Deputy Public Health Department Director Sarah Reistetter. Reistetter also reported outbreak numbers for two other Tyson meatpacking plants. The plant in Waterloo had 444 workers test positive, which was 17% of those tested. The one in Columbus Junction had 221 workers test positive, which was 26% of those tested. At the Iowa Premium Beef Plant in Tama, 258 workers tested positive, which was 90, or excuse me, 39% of those tested. In addition, Reistetter announced that 131 workers of the TPI Inc. wind turbine plant in Newton tested positive for the virus, which was 13% of those tested. Reader's note, in Des Moines, Hy-Vee has limited meat purchases to four per customer at each of their locations each day. Our next story, the Supreme Court is going to hear a significant birth control coverage case. This story written by Sandaya Rahman, she writes for CQ Roll Call. The Supreme Court is scheduled to hear arguments Wednesday on whether two Trump administration rules that would expand the types of employers that could refuse to cover contraception can take effect. The rules would let any employer or university offering students coverage seek a religious or moral exemption to covering birth control under their health plans. Under the 2010 health care law, most women have access to contraception without a copay. That requirement has been in effect since 2012. Last year, the two rules from the Departments of Health and Human Services, Treasury, and Labor were set to permit the exemptions before being blocked in the courts. The case is being closely watched, in part because the High Court is more conservative than in the past. Opponents of the rules say they could have decreased access to contraceptives for hundreds of thousands of women. 
but supporters of the rules say they are needed to protect against religious discrimination for employers whose benefits conflict with contraception. Multiple district courts issued nationwide injunctions against the rules, and in a case brought by Pennsylvania and New Jersey, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit continued to block the rules. That decision was appealed, and two consolidated cases, Trump versus Pennsylvania and Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania, aim to have those rules implemented by appealing that decision. This is the third time that arguments over the contraceptive mandate have reached the Supreme Court. In 2014, the High Court decided in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Store that closely held for for-profit corporations with religious objections could be exempted from the coverage mandate. But in 2016, the Supreme Court mandated in Zubik v. Burwell sending seven consolidated cases back to their respective districts without resolving the issue of whether religious institutions other than churches should be exempt from the mandate. Religious groups have wanted more clarity from the government since then. The Supreme Court will have the opportunity to once more weigh in and decide if additional exemptions to the law are constitutional. This will be the first case challenging this part of the law since the addition of two Trump nominees to the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch and Brent Kavanaugh, tilting the court to a conservative majority. Bridget Omery, Deputy Director with the American Civil Liberties Union Reproductive Freedom Project, said the new rules go much further than the previous accommodations. Essentially, she said the law, under the Obama administration's interpretation, requires an insurance company to provide coverage and communicate with the employees about the benefit, allowing employers to refuse to be directly involved in administering the coverage. And a couple of your letters to the editor. The first one is Renee Delman. She writes from Ames. Since the pandemic began, I have been pretty patient and we are following the restrictions as best we can. However, I am beginning to think that in a way, they are not fair to everyone. Walmart, Thesons, Menards, Lowe's, Sam's, the nurseries, grocery stores, etc. are opened, but don't have to ask people coming through their doors whether they have a fever. We're in contact with a sick person, limit the number of people inside at any given time, and enforce safe distancing. And so, why are the restaurants, libraries, delicatessens, salons, and other small businesses required to do so now if they reopen their doors? Big should not be favored over small. And that letter was written by Renate Delman of Ames. The next letter is written by Dean R. Prestemon. He is from Ames, and he writes... In late January, presidential advisor Peter Navarro warned this president about the dangers of an approaching pandemic. However, the current occupant of the White House chose to ignore this early advisory and downplay and denigrate the potential threat. Furthermore, he elected to take no remedial actions to prepare this country for the devastating onslaught. Now, after more than 58,000 deaths, 
This president finally seems to recognize the seriousness of COVID-19 while refusing to accept any personal responsibility. Instead, he insists on blaming others for this deadly national problem. At various times, he has accused China, Democratic governors, the World Health Organization, and the CDC, and for, for, uh, the CDC. Although he has no expertise in health-related issues, he has been more than willing to offer erroneous, reckless, and even dangerous recommendations on potential remedies. This president has also been inconsistent and incoherent in his responsibilities to pandemic challenges. He recently opined that he had absolute authority to determine when and how to return our nation to normality. Then he reversed course and declared that governors should make those decisions. However, he intimated that he would expect primary credit for any successful reopening of our economy while insisting the governors must assume responsibility if a second wave of infection occurs. This president has also publicly encouraged and supported demonstrations by radical followers who are advocating prompt return of the country to business as usual in defiance of recommendations by healthcare experts. These alligators, or excuse me, these agitators are apparently willing to accept an increased personal health risk but they refuse to acknowledge that such actions would place their fellow citizens in increased lethal jeopardy. Hopefully, scientific facts and patient good sense will prevail when our nation's governors, including Iowa's Kim Reynolds, carefully transition their states to some semblance of normality. That letter was written by Dean R. Prestman, and he is from Ames. Our next story Mexico's fragile healthcare system is running out of room for coronavirus patients. This story is written by Patrick McDonald and Cecilia Sanchez. They write for the Los Angeles Times. They waited for hours outside Los Americas Hospital for word about their loved ones. Then the small group ran out of patients and stormed inside. Upon discovering bodies on gurneys packed into the pathology ward, they accused the staff of murder. I unzipped the bag of my son to confirm that it was him, Maria Dolores Castillo later told a television interviewer, describing how she touched his head. My son was still warm, she said. The coronavirus pandemic has battered sophisticated healthcare systems in Europe and the United States. Mexico is in another category. The country's fragile medical infrastructure appears to be in danger as hospitals become overloaded. The unrest at the hospital Friday in Ecatepec, a gritty suburb of Mexico City, attracted widespread attention and became a potent symbol of how the public is losing patience. After authorities dispatched dozens of National Guard troops and state police officers in riot gear to quell the disturbance, hospital officials vowed to improve communication with families. The capital and adjoining areas in the state of Mexico, a metropolitan area that is home to more than 22 million people, accounted for 44% of the country's confirmed 24,900 coronavirus cases and almost a third of the 2,271 deaths. Because relatively little testing has been done, officials acknowledge that the real numbers are probably much higher. Using estimates based on modeling, 
Mexican health authorities said they expect cases to peak this week. Medical professionals who complained publicly for weeks about shortages of masks and other necessities have expressed growing alarm. The situation in the hospitals in Mexico City is critical. Basically, I can tell you that we are at war, Dr. Manguela Madero, chief of kidney care at National Institute of Cardiology, told Mexico's W Radio last week. Struggling with a lack of ventilators, overwhelmed physicians face drastic decisions about who to save, she said. For those patients who have little possibility of moving forward, we can offer them palliative treatments, basically compassionate sedation, Madero said. There is brutal frustration among our health personnel. Such dire warnings contrast sharply with official reassurances, notably from President Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador. Look, we don't have a problem with hospital beds, the president told reporters last week. Fortunately, until now, we have the capacity to attend to the sick. He blamed conservative opponents for dismantling, or excuse me, disseminating false news accounts of people denied care. In the Mexico City area, however, at least 22 hospitals designated as coronavirus treatment sites, 40% of the total, had run out of beds by Monday, according to an official city website. Outside the November 20 National Medical Center, in the Valais Sur neighborhood, a banner declared, For the moment, we have exceeded our capacity to attend to patients with coronavirus, and we have no more beds available. We appreciate your understanding. Mexico City Mayor Claudia Scharnenbaum said last week that 68% of Mexico City hospital beds for coronavirus cases were occupied. On Monday, she added, that 60% of 1,700 beds in the metro area equipped with ventilators were in use. Authorities have been scrambling to transform other facilities, including a bank building, a car racetrack, and a military hospital, into treatment hubs. On Monday, the government said the former presidential compound of Los Pinos would be converted into a hospital for besieged medical workers. Excuse me, a hostel for besieged medical workers. People with symptoms can call 911 or text a hotline. Those judged to require hospitalization are referred to facilities that still have beds available. Ambulances are dispatched in emergency cases. For care, most Mexicans rely on the country's long-neglected public hospitals, especially the vast network run by the Social Security Institute a lumbering bureaucracy that boasts of being the largest public health service in Latin America. A joke here is that the Institute's Spanish acronym, IMSS, stands for an expletive laced declaration that roughly translates as, your health is worth nothing. For a long time, Mexico has ranked near the bottom in terms of development of the health sector. Dr. Hugo Lopez Cantel the Undersecretary of Health, who heads the country's response to coronavirus, recently told reporters. Moreover, the Mexican population exhibits elevated rates of diabetes, hypertension, and obesity factors that can heighten the vulnerability to COVID-19. As available hospital beds have dwindled, some people have been forced to travel a long way to find care. 
We heard they weren't accepting any more patients in the hospital near where we live, so we decided to bring our brother here, said Blanca Diaz, age 30. She and her two sisters were among clutches of relatives of patients awaiting updates on a recent morning outside the 1200-bed general hospital, Dr. Eduardo Laguicia, in central Mexico City. Family visits to coronavirus patients are barred because of fear of infection. With beleaguered doctors and nurses often too busy to deliver updates to families, the job often falls to guards. The Diaz sisters have brought their brother, Julio Cesar Diaz, a 43-year-old diabetic who is having trouble breathing, from Isapapala, a teeming borough on the city's east side that has become a coronavirus hotspot. Residents there live in close quarters, and many have had no choice but to continue working despite shutdown orders. Careful, you are entering a zone of high contagion. Read yellow banners that officials have raised in Izapala and other high-risk precincts. Julio Diaz died the day after he was hospitalized. Doctors told the family that he had succumbed to complications from coronavirus. Before passing, he had managed to send a video message to his wife. I love you, Gordita, using a common term of endearment. Despite objections from hospital staff, the family demanded that a relative view the body. Rumors of hospitals mixing up or misidentifying bodies have circulated on social media. We wanted to be sure it was my brother, said Belanca Diaz. A brother-in-law was allowed to enter the hospital to see the remains, and relatives and friends chipped in to pay the more than $1,000 funeral home fee, inflated because of special sanitation procedures. Open viewing wakes are banned. My brother went into the hospital, and suddenly he was gone, and we couldn't even see him, embrace him, say farewell, his sister said. There is now a very profound sadness. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Your reader today is Dave Sauerman, and it is time now to turn to the obituaries. Uh, let's see, Claudia M. Smith Thompson, age 76, of Safety Harbor, Florida, passed away on April 24th after a long illness. Beloved mother, sister, aunt, cousin, grandmother, and great-grandmother. Claudia was born March 4, 1944, in Ames, Iowa, daughter of Maxwell and Mildred Smith. She was a 1962 graduate of Ames High School and a longtime resident of Dalton and Pittsfield, Massachusetts, as well as Ames, Iowa. Claudia was a loving, generous, and unwavering kind woman, a member of Zion's Evangelical Lutheran Church and First Baptist Church of Pittsfield, where she cherished singing in their choir. Claudia enjoyed spending time with family, cooking, and loved the arts and crafts. She was survived by her sisters, Della Sella of Wisconsin, Marilyn Gorham of Illinois, and Joyce Smith of Oregon. Claudia was previously married to Gert Thompson of Dalton, Massachusetts from 1962 to 1984. She is survived by her children, Scott Thompson of Valerico, Florida, Steve and his wife, Dawn Thompson of Oldsmar, Florida, and Linda Thompson Foster of Gainesville, Georgia. Her beloved grandchildren are Kristen Thompson, Zoe, 
and her husband, Greg Emmerman, Kana Lugo, Chase Thompson, Ethan Thompson, and Sarah Thompson of Florida, Sherton Lugo and Cage Thompson of Massachusetts, Jared Foster of the United States Marine Corps, and Jewel Foster of Georgia, and three great-grandchildren. A memorial service and celebration of life will take place at a date and time and place to be announced. Niala L. Benson, longtime Ames resident, age 82, died in Annapolis, Maryland on April 26 from the COVID-19 virus. Niala K. Lawrence was born in 1937 to Matt L. and Edna Caldwell Lawrence in Ottumwa, and she graduated from Ottumwa High School in 1955. She attended Iowa State University in Ames, where she was a member of the Delta 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 sorority. She majored in journalism and received a Bachelor of Science degree in 1959. She married her college sweetheart, Charles, a.k.a. Chuck, on October 24, 1959, and moved to Milwaukee, where she was a special events and fashion coordinator, assistant at the Boston store. Niala and Chuck returned to Ames in 1962, where they raised three children and lived for more than 50 years at 614 Hodge Avenue before moving to Annapolis, Maryland in 2017. Niala was a community leader and a lifelong volunteer who chaired dozens of boards and committees in Ames over six decades. She was a patron of the arts and a member of more organizations than can be named here, but some of the most meaningful associations to her were the PEO chapter, LN, Cynthia O. Duff Questers, Beta Tau Delta, Delta Delta Delta, Ames Kiwanis Club, the Ames Foundation, Mary Greeley Medical Center Foundation, Israel Family Hospice House, Youth and Shelter Services, Iowa State University, and the First United Methodist Church. Niala never met a stranger, nor declined a request to lend a helping hand. Friends will remember that she always had a smile on her face, and that she was a warm and welcoming hostess, who loved to entertain at home and in her beautiful backyard, surrounded by flowers that she and Chuck tended. She also loved to travel, and she and Chuck made wonderful memories all across the United States, Mexico, Israel, Turkey, Europe, and South America. She was an ardent and vocal Iowa State Cyclone fan, and in a nod to her time in Milwaukee, she rooted for the Green Bay Packers. But she mainly wanted to surround herself with the people that she loved, of whom there were many. She collected friends everywhere she went, from her childhood and college days to those with whom she served on committees, or at the polls, on vacation, and in the neighborhood. But no one gave her more pleasure than her seven grandchildren, of whom she was so proud. Neela was survived by her husband of 60 years, her son Jeff and Juanita of New Braniffles, Texas, her daughter Jennifer Lichman and Jonathan of Annapolis, Maryland, and her son Chris and Kelly of Ansbach, Germany. She was the beloved grandmother of Tara and Justin Benson, Jack and Giselle Mimi Lichman, and Haley Shane and Nick Beetson, or excuse me, Benson. A celebration of life will be held in Ames at a later date when we are again able to travel and gather after COVID-19. 
Memorial contributions can be made in her name to Youth and Shelter Services at 420 Kellogg Avenue, Ames, Iowa 50010. Lowell Robert Bob Dahlgren, age 79, of Fairfax, passed away May 3rd at West Ridge Care Center, Cedar Rapids, after suffering a stroke. Because of the coronavirus pandemic, a private burial service will be held on Thursday, May 7, at St. Patrick's Cemetery in Fairfax. A memorial service will be held at a later time. Tian Funeral Home is serving the family. Bob was born April 3rd in Omaha, Nebraska, to the late Lowell and Betty Powell Dahlgren. He graduated from Enid in Oklahoma, Enid High School in 1959. In April 1972, he married Sandy Fitzgerald in Ames, where they lived until moving to Fairfax in 2013. Bob was employed in the right-of-way office of the Iowa Department of Transportation for 38 years, and he retired in 2006. He is survived by his wife of 48 years, Sandy Dahlgren, a daughter, Emily, and Josh Limebaugh of Cedar Rapids, grandchildren, Laura, Eric, and Abby Limebaugh, a brother, Richard, and Lori Dahlgren of Leander, Texas, and a sister, Carol Sharp of Denton, Texas, brothers-in-law, Craig Ram of Urbandale, and John Engstrom of Duluth, Minnesota, and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his father, Lowell Dahlgren, mother, Betty Dahlgren, sisters, Kathleen and Kathy Rahm, and Kim Engstrom, and a brother-in-law, Randy Sharp. Bob was a member of St. John the 13th, excuse me, St. John the 23rd Catholic Church, the 4th Degree Knights of Columbus, and Chapter 41 of the International Right of Way Association. The family wishes to thank the staff of West Ridge Care Center and Mercy Hospice for excellent care provided to Bob during the last three months. Cards and memorials may be sent to the family in care of Tian Funeral Home and Sir Cremation Services, located at 3100 F Avenue, Northwest, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 52405. Online condolences can be left at, I'll spell it, T-E-A-H-E-N, funeralhome.com. And Carl Ostrom, age 67, of Story City, passed away on Saturday, May 2nd, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. In this unusual and unprecedented time, the funeral service will be limited to immediate family only. The service will be held on Friday, May 8th, at the Emanuel Lutheran Church in Story City, and burial will take place in the Story City Cemetery. The funeral service will be recorded, and a link will be present at www. EmmanuelStoryCity.org and at BokeyFuneralHomes.com. A public visitation will be held on Thursday, May 7, from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to 7 p.m. at Carl and Rhonda's shop building uh, located at 403 Broad Street in Story City. Please be aware that all social distancing guidelines must be adhered to. Memorial funds will be used to purchase playground equipment in the North Park of Story City. For more information and online condolences, you can go to BokeyFuneralHomes.com. 
Boki Funeral Home of Radcliffe is assisting the family with arrangements. Here's Dennis the Menace for this uh, Wednesday. Dennis is sitting at his father's desk in front of uh, an Alexa machine, and um, his dad and his mom are standing behind him. His mom has her hand covering her face with the oh-my-goodness look on her face. Uh, dad is standing there holding his newspaper, and he's got sort of the same surprised and shocked look on his face. And Dennis says, No need to tell me where babies come from. I already asked Alexa. And some news from around the nation. From Mobile, Alabama. Traffic accidents are killing fewer people as they drive less during the pandemic. Highway deaths in April dropped 58% from March and 42% from a year earlier according to statistics from the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency. From Junio, Alaska, dentists say their business may be hurt by a state mandate requiring patients to have a negative test result for coronavirus within 48 hours of an elective procedure. From Phoenix, Arizona, restaurants in the state can reopen next week amid a downward trend in coronavirus cases and other measurements laid out by federal officials. Governor Doug Ducey announced Monday. Ducey said salons and barbershops can open on Friday. From Little Rock, Arkansas, movie theaters, bowling alleys, arenas, and other large venues will be allowed to reopen soon, but with new limits to curb the spread of the coronavirus, Governor Asa Hutchinson said on Monday. And from Sacramento, California, with more local governments moving ahead with their own plans for reopening, Governor Gavin Newsom announced Monday that the state will gradually allow clothing stores, florists, bookstores, and sporting goods shops to open their doors. From Denver, Colorado, offices in the state were allowed to reopen Monday with half the usual staff, and Denver's mayor will let his stay-at-home order expire at the end of Friday. From Hartford, Connecticut, the state agriculture commissioner is considering buying food in bulk, to provide to organizations that feed needy people, which have seen huge upticks in demand coupled with challenges in getting supplies. From Dover, Delaware, the state will now allow independent contractors and people who work for themselves to file for unemployment. From the District of Columbia, Washington, statehood for the district is something President Donald Trump believes will never happen, WUSA-TV reports. In a New York Post interview, Trump said Republicans aren't stupid enough to add Democratic seats in Congress. In Daytona Beach, Florida, officials issued about 900 verbal social distancing warnings to people during the first weekend Volusia County's beaches were largely reopened for almost all activities. And from Atlanta, Georgia, the Georgia State Board of Education is allocating $411 million in federal aid to help pay for COVID-19 related issues to the state school districts and independent charter schools. From Chicago, Illinois, the legal sale of marijuana during the state's first full month of lockdown due to the corona coronavirus surpassed sales in the two previous months, officials announced. From Indianapolis, Indiana, shoppers trickled into some large shopping malls Monday as they opened for the first time in more than a month under a new order from the governor easing many restrictions imposed to slow the coronavirus spread. From Lawrence, Kansas, Lawrence Memorial Hospital is furloughing more than 220 employees 
because it is struggling financially after temporarily halting elective surgeries and treatments amid the coronavirus outbreak. The hospital said it has, it has experienced revenue declines of more than $1 million per week since the pandemic began, the Lawrence World Journal reports. From Louisville, Kentucky, a federal judge has ruled Governor Andy Brashear's restriction on travel amid the coronavirus pandemic is unconstitutional, but United States District Judge William O. Bertelsman sided with the governor on his ban of mass gatherings in a ruling issued Monday. In St. Gabriel, Louisiana, nearly every woman in a prison dormitory at the Evelyn Hunt Correctional Center has tested positive for the COVID-19, and two-thirds of them showed no symptoms, according to state figures. In Bethel, Maine, a restaurant owner said he is ready for round two of flouting Democratic Governor Jane Mills' executive orders over the coronavirus. Rick Savage said he was reopening his Sunday River Brewing Company on Tuesday in defiance of Mills' orders, and he continued to criticize her for not acting fast enough to reopen the state's economy. From Ocean City, Maryland, the state's most popular beach destination is set to reopen its shore this weekend, and a city official has said day-trippers will not be turned away, even though out-of-town visitors would be violating the state's stay-at-home order. From Quincy, Massachusetts, a second Walmart store in the state temporarily closed after an employee died of COVID-19 and several others tested positive for the coronavirus, authorities said. The Walmart in Quincy closed Monday and will stay shuttered until further notice. Mayor Thomas Koch said on the city's YouTube page, A Worcester Walmart that shut down last week is expected to reopen this week. From Detroit, Michigan, Sinai Grace Hospital, under scrutiny for its treatment of the dead and dying during the coronavirus, has been found in compliance of rules related for staff and infection control a state agency said. For Minneapolis, Minnesota, the COVID-19 pandemic has erased the state's budget cushion. Minnesota Management and Budget reported Tuesday. The agency said it now projects a nearly $2.4 billion deficit for the current two-year budget period. That's almost a $4 billion plunge from a February forecast. In Jackson, Mississippi, Governor Tate Reeves said Monday that he will ease some of the restrictions he imposed on restaurants and outdoor gatherings to slow the spread of the coronavirus, and the new rules will take effect on Thursday. In Great Falls, Montana, after nine years of steady job growth, COVID-19 plunged the state into its worst recession since World War II in just a few weeks, with a new economic forecast estimating the 2020 job loss at more than 51,000. In Omaha, Nebraska, two meat processing plants in the state have announced temporary closures in the wake of a surge in the coronavirus cases. A Tyson food pork plant in Madison and a Cargill beef plant in Shiler announced Monday they would be temporarily shut down production to deep clean the plants, the Omaha World Herald reported. In Las Vegas, Nevada, when casinos eventually reopen, customer numbers will be cut in half, nightclubs will remain closed, Convention groups will be limited, and gamblers will have to keep safe distances apart, according to new rules from the state gambling regulator. 
In Concord, New Hampshire, towns and cities are getting $40 million for costs associated with the pandemic, and first responders are getting a temporary boost in pay, Governor Chris Sununu said on Monday. In Trenton, New Jersey, former Governor Chris Christie said they are going to be deaths no matter what, and he called for leaders to allow people to get back to work before we destroy the American way of life by shutting down. He said if he were still governor, he would be reopening. From Las Cruces, New Mexico, former Governor Bill Richardson has recruited two Hollywood actors to help raise money for areas of Donana County that were already struggling before the pandemic. Richardson's philanthropic foundation is partnering with the Las Cruces Sun News to promote a relief fund. Richardson said he reached out to Edward James Olmos and Danny Trejo to see if they would join. The fund has already amassed $40,000. In Albany, New York, the state has reported more than 1,700 previously undisclosed deaths at nursing homes and adult daycare facilities amid scrutiny over how New York has protected vulnerable residents during the coronavirus pandemic. In Gastonia, North Carolina, the chairman of the Board of Healthcare System has resigned after reports about his social media posts, including one in which he called stay-at-home orders tyranny. Carl Mount Health Board of Directors Chairman Donnie Loftus resigned Monday after eight years, the Charlotte Observer reported. And from Fargo, North Dakota, health officials say a lack of testing supplies for COVID-19 forced a cancellation of mass screenings Monday in the state's biggest coronavirus hotspot. From Columbus, Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine announced he's cutting $775 million from the state budget in the next two months because of plummeting revenue due to pandemic. Spending reductions are necessary now to avoid worse cuts down the road and will affect every state agency except the prisons department, the Republican governor said. From Guyman, Oklahoma, at least 116 employees at a pork processing plant have tested positive coronavirus. Seaboard Foods spokesperson David Ahart said in a statement on Monday. From Astoria, Oregon, a seafood processor has shut down after 13 workers tested positive for the new coronavirus. The outbreak at Borstein Seafoods tripled the number of cases in Galstop County after three weeks during which no new cases had emerged. The historian reports, tests on five more people who show symptoms of the illness are pending. From Columbia, South Carolina, the state's predicted peak of coronavirus cases and deaths was pushed further into the future Tuesday with hundreds more people projected to die. The new production is more than 1,100 deaths by early August from COVID-19. Less than two weeks ago, state health officials predicted less than 700 deaths by early August. In Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Christy Nome said Monday that the state's budget is expected to take a big hit from the economic shock of the virus. Nome said South Dakota's general fund revenues for March are down $18 million. From Memphis, Tennessee, the county's Major, excuse me, Mayor, issued rules Monday for the reopening of barbershops and hair salons after saying Governor Bill Lee only offered guidelines but not strict COVID-19 related safety requirements for the reopening of close contact businesses. 
Shelby County Mayor Lee Harris worried the confusion caused by mixed messaging from different jurisdictions could lead to more rapid spread of the virus. From Amarillo, Texas, a surge of coronavirus cases in the Texas Panhandle, a crucial region for the nation's beef supply, has federal officials sending help to the city to try to control rising numbers of infections over the last week. The mayor said Monday the area is responsible for 25% of the nation's fed beef supply. From Charleston, West Virginia, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention told state officials that respirator masks distributed to 50,000 first responders might be counterfeit, but officials decided to leave them in use, according to a report. After the warning, the state's top public safety official issued a report to first responders that said the masks are authentic, the Charleston Gazette Mail reports. And that brings us to the end of reading the Tribune for this Wednesday, May 6, 2020. Your reader today has been Dave Sowerman, and you have been listening to IRIS, your Iowa radio reading and information service for the blind and print handicapped. Thank you for listening to IRIS. IRIS.